I always wanted to know who the best player was on tour simply because I wanted to actually work as hard. And then I ran into a, a little guy by the name of George Knudsen out of Canada. And I watched him hit the golf ball. I watched him with the wide stance, taking the club back way inside, releasing the club. One of the greatest ball strikers I'd ever seen. Now Ballesteros. With a putt that could win him the 113th British Open. Hello and welcome to a brand new edition of the McKellar Golf Podcast. My name is Lawrence Stonigan. I'm joined this week as I'm joined every week by my great pal and co-host Mr. John Huggin. Before we get on with the show, I have to do my usual bit of selling at McKellar Magazine Issue 3, a McKellar Journal if you like. Uh, I like to call it a literary golf journal. The New Yorker of golf is available for sale. If you go to mckellarmagazine.com, mckellarmagazine.com slash shop, you can jump in there and get yourself a copy beautiful illustration of Seve Ballesteros on the front cover by the great Harold Riley. I think we have, I think it's a dozen copies of issue number two left. So if you're looking for the full McKellar, that's all three magazines together, then you better get onto it very soon. Anyway, enough of that. On with the show. This week's guest is Curtis Strange, a two-time winner of the US Open, 17-time winner on the PGA Tour, three-time winner of the money list on the PGA Tour, just a phenomenal player. After his career as a professional golfer, Curtis has gone on to fashion an incredible career as a TV analyst with various US networks, ABC, ESPN, and latterly with the Fox Network, uh, with their coverage of the US Open Golf. He told us he was a pretty reticent, reserved person, but uh, he really isn't. Uh, he's great on TV, great interviewer on TV, and he has a, a brilliant story to tell about his life in golf. And he has lots of clearly golf-savvy opinions on the game and everything that surrounds the game. Curtis Strange gave us 90 minutes of his time. It was, from our perspective, a real privilege. Curtis Strange, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you guys? Uh, where are you, Curtis? I'm in Naples, Florida. Um it doesn't matter where we are right now. We're hunkered down, huh? Yeah, it's uh, pretty strange times, isn't it? Um, actually, I was going to ask you, uh, straight off the bat, you were the Ryder Cup captain in 2001. There's a lot of debate comes straight up today that uh, Ryder Cup postpone it or Ryder Cup this year, fans, no fans. Can you maybe talk about what happened in 2001? What, what was the scenario there? two or two and a half weeks before we were to fly to the Belfry, the team. And um, 9-11 hit. Uh, we were attacked. The world was attacked. Uh, I was on the other side of the country, had a two-day trip home driving back to the East Coast. And during that time, uh, there was a lot of conversation on what do we do? The two tours and the players of America, which owns the Ryder Cup here in the U.S., um, different knowledgeable people on the state of the world at that time and everybody decided that the best thing to do was to postpone it a year because quite frankly we didn't know what was going to happen the next day uh, you know times were so uncertain which is very much like it is now you know they call this um, these leaders wartime leaders right now I, I suspect that's term I don't know if it's really correct or not but in 2001, it was wartime, and um, 
So we chose to delay it a year, and that took a lot of logistical work from moving the President's Cup to the odd years and the erotic of going to the even years. So now it looks like it, it could possibly very well move back. I just can't imagine, uh, because of the atmosphere, a erotic cup without fans, because they, it depends on where you play, they make the whole week. Well, we were discussing this last night, and we kind of made the joke. I mean, none of this is a la- is a laughing matter. But the Ryder Cup was basically played without fans prior to nineteen eighty three, wasn't it? Or 19, even 1983, <laughs> there weren't many fans. Certainly in America, yeah. Uh, good point. Good point. My first Ryder Cup was nineteen eighty three, man. And on Sunday down in West Palm Beach, Jack Nichols was the captain. We probably had about a thousand people there on Sunday afternoon and it was uh, it was the way it was in that time who, did, who were you playing on the Sunday afternoon I'm sure I've written it down somewhere but I can't find it off the top of my head can you remember I played Paul Way that's right that's man right. with a lot of potential don't know what he's doing now he played for a number of years after that but never never really heard from much after that I don't believe and uh, it was just, um, uh, it, it's interesting to go back and see during those times who made it and who didn't on any tour. Uh, Paul looked like he was going to be, you know, just a, a player to be around for the ages and, and wasn't quite to be. He had a few, um, how can I put this, pitching issues later, <laughs> Curtis. That was what finished him, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, you never know why... Uh, something happens to somebody. They look like they have the entire game. Um, he had strength for not a big man, but uh, yeah, it just happens. Uh, you know, we all, well, quite frankly, we all have those pitching issues as we get a little older. Trust me on that. <laughs> oh, oh, I know. Believe me. <laughs> that that 83 uh, Ryder Cup, was that your first introduction to Seve? I, I think you played him, was it you and Kite played him and, and uh, Paul Way uh, earlier in the week? Yeah, uh, and I, I don't remember. Uh, I don't think so because I turned pro in 76, and then Sebi was introduced to the world in, um, uh, at Burkdale, correct, when Johnny yeah. Miller won? Was yeah, that yeah. 70? 76, yeah. So, so you, probably, you, you played with him a few times on tour. Yeah, I can imagine because, you know, we both came up about the same time, although he was a little bit younger. But he, uh, uh, I think more than likely, I played with him once or twice before uh, before the 83 Ryder Cup matches. Uh, you had a, a long uh, rivalry with Sebi at the Ryder Cup. You played against him uh, in singles. You played against him. You played against uh, Alathabal and Sebi as a pairing a few times. Any kind of memories of him in a Ryder Cup context? I mean, was he an, an insufferable opponent? Was he a great player? I guess he was both of those things. Uh, well, I, you know, it. Uh, Sevi was uh, a very tough competitor. Um, we saw in the way he played. He played with such intensity and, and lived and died with every shot and putt. And I think he thrived uh, a bit on controversy. Uh, that's what got him going, and certainly the Ryder Cup in those days had some animosity, had a bit of a controversial rulings here and there, and uh, Sebi seemed to always be in the middle of it. He's what made the Ryder Cup in the day. He brought it to the modern era, 
and he was the leader, he and Tony Jacklin. And they, through whatever mentality they had to beat the big bad USA or whatever the case was, Seve was their leader and inspirational leader as well. Do you, do, you, do you ever feel a wee bit unfortunate, Curtis, in, the, in that your timing wasn't great and that uh, you were playing at the, the top of the American team for you know maybe a decade or so, just at the time when Europe suddenly came up with five you know genuinely great players that you had to play against pretty much every match? It, well, no, I, I look at it as, 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 as an honor and, and also a thrill to play against when things were changing every day. Uh, you know, I'm asked all the time why and when and how did the Ryder Cup start to change? Mm. And I answer it by this. Seve, Nick, Sandy, Ian, and Bernhard. Yeah. That is it. You had five of the top 10 or 12 or 15 players in the world eventually, and they were one, they were great players. And then you had other players you know, the, the lot's been written, maybe not as deep, but when you ride five horses like that, which which Tony did, mm-hmm. uh, it makes for a hell of a, a you know opposing team. And uh, we played hard. You know, the lot been written about how we don't come together as a team as, as good as the Europeans and and things like that, which is total BS. Uh, we played hard and played to win, and it was just a you know we played a formidable team for that uh, 15 years or so, maybe 20 years. I, I enjoyed getting to, to know all the guys. I played in Europe, you know, every year. Faraday and Torrance and O'Leary and Eamon Darcy and, and some of the older names. Uh, I had a ball over there because I like to drink a beer once in a while with some <laughs> of the boys, and, and, we did, and we did some of that. But, you know, in 1983 um, and 84 and 85 was a huge change in golf. The Europeans were trying to get access to the European or the American tour. There was a bit of a, uh, you know, back and forth there, uh, <laughs> and and you guys know more about it than I do. But uh, yeah, yeah, I've always thought, Curtis, yeah, that, uh, the, sorry to interrupt. The, the the second kind of layer of European players that sort of Sam Torrance, Ken Brown, Mark James, Howard Clark kind of group, they never really got to play in the American majors, and you know I thought they were they were one step down from being, you know, the the guys you just mentioned, and it was to me that the measure of using majors as a measure of true greatness is only a fairly recent thing, because a lot of the, you know, the the best players from around the world didn't get to play in three of the four every year. When Seve won his first Masters in 1980, there were there was four Europeans in the field, and one of them was an amateur. It's weird. It's a different world. For sure, I, I agree with what's going on now either with with a, a world golf championship counting on all tours, mm. you know, it's a one win. It, it should count on whatever tour you're on. And, you know, you, you talk about some of those players, well, they never won in the U S first of all, who made us, you know, you had to win in the U S to be an accomplished player. Number one, and you didn't have access number two. Mm-hmm. So, you know, back in the day, gosh, you, you just named four, five of them, Huggy. Uh, that just didn't have the access to come over here and play. And nowadays yeah. they do. And uh, it's a whole different ball game. And your record, and your record shows just how different it really is. Even before that, you know, there was guy, I mean, Peter Alice and Neil Coles. I mean, I'm not sure the world will ever really know how a great player Neil Coles was, but, you know, he, he didn't fly because he was scared of the airplane thing. But 
he would have been if he'd gone to America and played. I mean, he would have been a, a winner. I mean, there was always there was always plenty of guys. Well, not plenty of guys, but there was a number of guys. You know, back in the day that would have been competitive in America. How about Chris O'Connor Senior in the day? Exactly. I had another one. I had the great opportunity to play with him a couple of times in '76 and '77 when I was just turning pro, and I he was as fine a striker as a ball and and handsy, talented. Yeah, man, as you've ever seen, and then you have a guy like uh, uh, you just you just mentioned uh, it, a lot of talent down the line. But Neil Coles was as fine a. I played with him a couple of times, and, and mm-hmm. people don't even know who that is. And I know that's yeah. that's the shame of it because of of, of the travel, uh, because he didn't want to fly, of course. But mm-hmm. then there wasn't any access either. Yeah, Curtis, I, can I just wind you back to the uh, just quickly to the Ryder Cup? And you mentioned the Big Five. I, I just want to ask you two questions. One of the most famous incidents in the Ryder Cup, uh, the ninety, uh, the eighty-five. You played with Stadler when he missed that putt. <laughs> right? Can you just describe that scene? What it felt like? What you were thinking? Because that, that was a pretty. Tony Jacklin described that as a kind of pivotal point in the history of the Ryder Cup. In the Ryder Cup overall, possibly that might be a, a, a bit of an overstatement, but it was certainly not an overstatement for that particular Ryder Cup. Um, I don't remember the this exact situation of the matches, but I do know we went to dinner that night knowing that the momentum and the tide had turned. We all did. Nobody spoke of that. Um, do you think we should have... Sorry to hark on about this. Would you have given that part? I mean, it was a tiddler. Uh, I didn't give many putts in the Ryder yeah, Cup. Right, right. <laughs> it was it was a pivotal point in the match. Heck, heck, no, you don't give those points. That's what you come to do is play and play them all out. And uh, I, I I never thought twice about giving the putt. I I thought he should have putted it. The uh, you played you were playing Langer and and Lyle. I, this is a very stupid and dumb reductive question. But, but who do you think was the best of the big five, or who was your as a go- as a golf appreciator, who was the one that you just thought, "Wow, Seve, of course." Um, and Seve was a magician. Um, I uh, I marveled at uh, the way he could play and put a score on the scorecard with some of the shots he hit. He was I uh, he always baffled me a little bit because he would hit these wayward tee shots, and his swing always looked to be right on to me he had a perfect grip his swing looked like it was right on playing the whole time and then of course he hit it hard and lashed at it off balance a lot but to me i never could understand why he could hit the ball so wayward sometimes and then when he got in trouble he was the best of the best he could hit these low cuts and high hooks out of the trees out of the car park we all remember that out of the rough so if you can do that, why can't you put it in the fairway with the ball sitting up on the tee? I never could quite understand that. Does that make sense to you? Because you, when you put him in trouble, he was an absolute magician with his imagination and his shot-making ability. Yeah, I always thought that he would have been he would have done better if he just imagined there was a tree in the way every shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, and much could be seen the same way at times with Tiger Woods. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, there was one year that Tiger was last in driving accuracy on tour and first in greens and regulation. How the hell do you do that? 
you know, of the other five, of the five, some, I thought Sandy was underrated. Mm. Um, I think Nick was an opportunist. Um, he put himself in position. Some people say there was some players that gave him some majors, John Cook at Muirfield one year, maybe two of the three of the masters, so on, so on. But he put himself in position. So you can't never say he was lucky, but he was an opportunist. Uh, I think that, um, Bernhard is, is, is the ultimate warrior. I mean, look what he's still doing at 60 some years old. Um, I was always a little surprised that he didn't win the open championship because he was that type of player, but I guess he was, his putting woes were such in, in times in his prime. But then you had Ian, Ian Woozy was woozy. Um, uh, had a chance to win the open once or twice and didn't. And then you had, um, Seve, of course, and, uh, they were, they were just, they were solid, solid players, and all very different too. Yeah, five very different personalities there. I see. Was the year you won at Oak Hill? How, how different can you be? With... Sorry, I was going to say uh, uh, the year you won at Oak Hill. Uh, Woozy, I didn't realize Woozy came pretty close as well that year, didn't he? Yeah, he tied for second. Yeah. Um, he. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't remember who finishes second, Huggy. Oh. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm betting you can you know, remember who finished second the first time you won, though. Yeah, well, I had to stare at him for, for two days, so. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Here, you know, uh, it, just, it, was, it was good fun. Curtis, we're going to come on to that. I just wanted to sort of take you back. Uh, you're an identical twin. Um, your brother, Alan, was a PGA, good player, obviously, PGA Tour player. What's interesting to me, your father was a ran a golf club, a golf pro. Same genes, same background. What was the difference between you and him as golfers? How, how did you, when he was, again, he was a good player. How did you get as far as you did? What was the difference between the two of you? Uh, he grew up playing, uh, I played basketball growing up and golf. He played, his two main sports were uh, football and baseball. And he played a little bit of golf uh, up into his teenage years. And that was the difference. And then when you get behind for the first, you know, we suppose started at nine or 10 years old. And, you know, by the time you're 17 or 18, uh, I had surpassed just because of, of the commitment I had to the game of golf and the lack of commitment he did. And then he eventually came back to golf during those times. And he was a little bit behind, but became a good player. Athletically was very good. We were the same build. Uh, and it's just, uh, you know, people, what's the difference in, what's the difference in A player and B player? Who knows? Is it inside? Is it your heart? Is it your mind? Uh, most of the time, it's your commitment to uh, never give up and uh, do it day in and day out. Get up every morning and, and go get her done. Because there's this big argument about development. Uh, you know, what makes a great world-class athlete? Do you think it was important that you played multiple sports? I am a huge believer that any young man, all sports, even if golf is your if your is your love, still play, you know, soccer or your football. Still play a little cricket. Still play baseball. Play some basketball because it it develops your entire body. It helps you with the golf swing. Not only develops but strengthens. And strengthens your 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 ability to to work as a team, to think through problems, 
if you're just a golfer, think about think about your hand-eye coordination is lacking in some aspects versus if you'd played another sport or two. Uh, I'm, I'm a, such a believer in that. And, and plus, as kids, I think you can burn out easily. I couldn't wait for golf season to get over to play some other sport. I would have been bored silly in my early years, and what happens after that? You quit. I, I, I'm, just a, I'm just a huge believer in all sports. How involved was your father in your development? I mean, did he stay, did he stay away? Yes. He, you know, I grew up on the golf course. And uh, he was he was the PGA professional there, um, and I did that for four or five years, and then he died when I was fourteen years old. Yeah. So, but I continued to go. Um, the club allowed me to go, and I continued to go every day in the summer, um, even during the the uh, uh, the uh, when the scene changes and women get involved in your life. But I still, I still made sure I practiced every day, and then I went to college, and then, then you're really committed to golf every day, and that's when things really change. Is when you go to college, uh, you you don't play other sports. You're committed to that sport, and it didn't become a job at that point. It was still great fun. Had we were on a great team, it really becomes more of a career and a and a, a, a job when you turn pro. Yeah, that, just quickly on your Wake Forest, the Demon Deacons, is that right? The uh, that was yes. so, that was a hell of a team, wasn't it? <laughs> I think so, uh, but I think when I look back on those times, how much we we cared for each other, and there was no jealousy. There was there was nothing but team. Jay Haas was on the team, who's still playing the senior tour, and there was a guy named Bob Byman who was the yeah. best junior in the country. He came to Wake Forest. He won the first Bay Hill Classic. Um, the API and then a guy named David Thor, who was an all American for three years. And, you know, style still a teaching pro, but we had a wonderful team. And, but I think more than anything else, we cared about each other and we rooted together as a team and wanted each other to do well. Speaking of amateur teams, Curtis, you were, you made your way to St. Andrews in 1975 and on the Walker cup team, that was a pretty, uh, you look back now, there's some pretty good names on that team as well. Huggy, you know what it's like to see the old course the first time. Uh, you've never seen, you know, I was 19 years old or so and never seen anything like it. And, and, and like anybody else, you, you learn to play it and then you learn to fall in love with it because it's so different than the, your first, the first appearance. But what a great, great week that was to be able to play the Rada Cup, uh, Walker Cup, number one, and then to be able to spend the week at St. Andrews and play the old course. Um, we played against great competitors. We had a grand time. I still see two or three of them at the Open Championship when I make it over there every year. And uh, it's, uh, it was just um, a great experience, a, a great memory for, for all of us. What was your first impression of the place? I mean, what were you thinking? Oh, my God, what is this? Or what was it? You know, I think the first thing is that uh, keeping the ball on the ground. Mm. That's what I thought about. You know, we were we were big hitters and hit it way in the air, and immediately you figure out this isn't going to work real well around here. <laughs> so you hit the ball low and you keep it on the ground, and, you know, running it up on the 12th green or running it through the Valley of Sin. or uh, You know, it was just so different. And, you know, it was a game that when you look back on it, you were learning every day. And you thought you, at 18 or 19 years old, you thought you knew the game inside mm. and out. But you really didn't, because now you now all of a sudden you're thrown 
upon the old course and there was a whole new you know skill set to learn and you know to to get it out of the bunkers and to play it low into the wind and it was just uh it was it, we just we just had a ball we we really did did you go and play in the british amateur the week after i did not that year um uh, i went back uh i came back to the British Amateur because it was at St. Andrews the following year. Right. Yeah. And only because of that, I wanted to, I wanted to try to win the, the uh, British Amateur. Uh, I was playing well. And so I made that trek over and I was exempt because of, uh, maybe the Walker cup. But anyway, I didn't play well and I got beat by a wonderful player. And I don't remember who it was, but, uh, <laughs> somebody, somebody who could, no, I mean, I'm serious. I mean, somebody who put it, kept it on the ground. Yeah and beat me like a yard dog and it just uh it, it didn't work and of course match play is match play but uh it was another great experience yeah i think dick sideroff won that the amateur yes 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 uh, curtis you sound like you absolutely loved it because a lot of guys don't well i'm not saying that i loved all the bounces <laughs> but uh i i love the i love the you know the chance to hit different shots, and not not that they turned out very well a lot of the times. And it was frustrating. But you know what's 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 the hardest shot in the world? You know, left to right wind. You know, whole location back left. No, the hardest shot in the world is the second shot into seventeen at the old course yeah. with the wind blowing. And when I shot sixty two there and set the record in the old. Uh, Dunhill Cup, I laid up there at 17 because uh, why am I going to try to hit this two iron into an, an area you know how small it is? So I laid up there and made par and then birdied the last. So, but to me, it's the toughest second shot in the world, and it's not even close. Yeah, it's an easy five that hole, but it's a very difficult four. That's always the way to look at it, I think. And and, and you're exactly right. And six is always in the game. <laughs> yeah, especially if you go for the four. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. But isn't that what makes it great? Absolutely. You know, it's just uh, yeah. If you want to, if you want to take five, you can make five there all day, going left, right, left. You know, that's easy. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, Curtis Huggy always says that golf is more interesting when the ball's on the ground. Do you, do you, do you have a view on that? Well. You know, I'm an American that grew up in a game of hitting high and carrying it. I mean, so, no, I'm, I'm serious. So, you know, I, I understand where he's coming from. In fact, you know, there's, with all these runoffs and cut areas around U.S. golf courses now, we are playing more of a game on the ground. But the difference is it's so manicured so nicely. Yeah. We don't have to pitch it or chip it. We can putt it. And I don't think that's the way it should be played. So, I have a tough time thinking about when you play the U.S. Open at Pinehurst, everything's so well manicured, you just putt whenever you miss a grain. That's mm -hmm. not what the intention was in the designer. The designer was to, to make you have three or four or five different options. Yeah. And I think the problem is it's so well manicured now, and you don't get that. Well, you're getting more of that now in the Open Championship, yes. But what's wrong with having a little scratchy, tight lie that you can't put it out of now? Now you have to use your imagination. And you know the best at that. There's been some great guys like that. Tiger showed at St. Andrews that year he lapped the field, but the best was Seve. Yeah. You know one of the best pitches I've ever seen in my life, and I don't remember the, the golf course, 
But when he got it up and down from the left of the green across a long green and almost hold it to win by one in the Open Championship, what course was that? That was at Lytham in 88, yeah. Lytham. It's one of the, I mean, under the pressure, one of the grandest pitches, not a chip and run, but a pitch. It was just, he was, he was, he, you know, you can't teach that stuff. You're born with it. Yeah, I was watching that shot um, just last week on somewhere or other. They were showing it on TV here because there's been a lot of reruns because there's nothing else to show. But um, And you watch it again, and you know what struck with me? It wasn't so much the you know the, the fantastic way it ran up and just kind of touched the edge of the hole. It was the noise that it impact. I mean, it was absolutely uh, perfect. You know, Huggy, people don't understand that to be a good chipper or pitcher of the ball, you have to hit it perfectly solid every time yeah and most of us don't and those who are good pitchers they catch it flush every time and somebody might say ah that's easy to do no it's not because you have a different lie different grasses different club different shot every time you miss a green and tom watson sevy phil mickelson the great ones hit it flush every time yeah yeah, I mean, I'm with you completely on that um, manicured courses, but I bang on about that all the time. I, I think it's it's much. I mean, these top players. I mean, it's, it's all very well. I mean, I, I know they're they're all really good from a a nice lie in the middle of the fairway, but I'm I'm with you. I, it's far more interesting to watch a a great player, you know, on a, maybe on a wee downslope and it's a slightly cuppy lie and just just see how you get on with that. You know, that that's the that's what separates people, I think, or should. You know, they're, they're teaching now, man, you know this, that when you hit a pitch shot, say it's a sand wedge or a pitching wedge, they're saying that when you make contact, the shaft should be straight up and down, so you use the bounce a little bit. Yeah. Let me tell you something. When you get a cuppy lie that's not real good, mm-hmm. and you have to hit it solid, that ball better be back on your right toe, yes. right foot, right toe, the shaft better be leaning about 30 degrees forward, and you better slam down on top of it. Yeah. You know what? You better throw that shaft straight up and down out the window because you're not going to make good contact. So that's that's how it's changed, though. Every lie is so perfect, you can do things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's out that, there and play the game that we all learned how to play. Yeah, that's one of the things. Again, I'd bang on for this as well is that the, the way the game has changed is that at, at your level, you know, the top level, they're still asked hard questions. But it seems to me that it's too much the same hard questions all the time, whereas the variety of it has been lost. I mean, you you must have a hard time comparing the way that or the game that you played with the game that we see now. Do you know? I mean, it's very different. Well, it is. I mean, it's uh, it's 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 not for me to judge because if 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 the three of us were twenty five years old, we'd play exactly the same way yeah, they're course. playing now. Yeah. It's and not a reflection of the players. Yeah. yeah. No, no, not at all. I think if you gave them the clubs and balls that we played with. In the seventy in the seventy five Walker Cup, they would learn how to play very quickly. And yeah. if they didn't, they'd be they'd be finding something else to do for a career. Uh, but they're all so talented. But I just think it is a different game. Uh, the the balls make it different. The clubs make it different. Uh, but the conditions make it different. We never had any runoff areas other than at the Open Championship. It was all rough everywhere. So you never had to have this, this, this pitch and run very few times that you ever hit shots like that. And everybody complained about that. So now we have a lot of runoffs and, 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 you know, fairway cut everywhere. And I'm not so sure I like that either. So uh, who knows? And, and, and we're not going to solve all the problems, but uh, it is a different game. You're exactly right. And I think 
on TV, a, a little bit more of a boring game to watch because it's the big drive in the wedge, mm-hmm. big drive in a wedge, and that's all they hit. Yeah, it's it's, it's one dimensional more than, than it used to be, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I I've never I've never spoken to a guy who shot sixty two on the old course, uh, Curtis. But can you just t- tell us a little bit about that day? I mean, did you when did you know you had something going? Were you thinking, hey, I might shoot, <laughs> I might I might break sixty here? I mean. I'm, I'm causing, this is real sacrilege. I shouldn't be reducing the old course like this. I mean, what, what was going through your head? Well, I, you know, it was the consolation match. I was playing Greg Norman in the, in the Dunhill. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we were going out there to have a nice match. It, it, uh, of course, when you're playing Greg or Craig's playing me, I think we're both trying pretty doggone hard. <laughs> but I, when I birdied the loop, I, I made one or two, I made two or three birdies going out. Uh, which I always felt that you had to. And then I birdied, I don't remember exactly, but I birdied the entire loop. And then I got to, I don't know, six or seven under, and the wind was blowing a little bit, but it was blowing 10 or 12 miles an hour, which coming in, you know how thick the air is. Mm-hmm. And so and at 17, to give an example, I hit driver two iron to the front right, you know, short of the green. So it was blowing a little bit. So I get a couple more, and then I have 18. You know, I, I started thinking a little bit like that. Never about breaking 60. I never had a round in my life where I ever thought. Never had a chance to do that. But anyway, so I get around, and so now I, I birdie 15, I think, and and 16, I really got hit a good putt that didn't go in. And so now I say, you know, I know if I birdie a par 17 and birdie 18, I know the record is. It's, it's 63, so I can shoot 16. I played. I hit a good drive at 17. I hit two iron to the front right edge of the green and pitched on and made about an eight-footer. And I'll never forget, Greg, at this point, has not saying much. You know, as, as anybody, just kind of leave, let you go. He knows what's going on. But after I hit my tee shot at 18, he came up to him and he kind of gave me a little pat on the shoulder. And that's all he said. He didn't say anything. He just did that. And I thought that was pretty a good sportsman. And meaning, okay, you know, birdie here. And I hit it in there about 15 feet, made it. But it was exciting. Uh, you know, I don't have many things in my house golf-related, but I do have that scorecard. And my wife got me in, in sterling silver that's on in my office wall. And uh, I, I love it. I, the disappointing part of it is that they, when they put some new tees in some years yeah. later, they, yeah. they didn't acknowledge the 62 that I shot and somebody else after that. Um, and it was disappointing, but uh, hey, you know, such as such as uh, um, whatever. But uh, it, it it was it was a great day, and I one I'll never forget. You won't recognize the place now, Curtis. Uh, the there's tees all over the place. There's tees on four different golf courses on the old course. <laughs> it's well, fine. You imagine back there. in the day, even the even the tees that we played for for the old timers that was probably sacrilegious too. So it's always changing. Every golf course is changing. Um, I, you know what? I never, I never played it backwards oh, and I mm. always wanted to do that. I've done that. It's brilliant fun. Yeah. Oh, I bet so. Yeah. Yeah. You, you suddenly realize, Curtis, why some of the bunkers are there. Exactly. And when you think about it, every green is accessible from over. It's like yeah. you're playing at the proper route. Yeah. And every bunker is there, as you said, which you can't see playing it the the, the way that we play it. Yeah. Uh, it. It's just, it's brilliant. It really is in the layout. Yeah, they actually played uh, a British amateur there that way around in the late 19th century. 
So it's it has been done. I tell you what, the the first hole is, is incredibly difficult. Imagine you know, the first tee to the seventeenth green. Can you imagine where how close to the fence you have to hit it to hit to have a shot straight up the seventeenth green? Wow. That fence always scared me. <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. seen people hit out of bounds there. Yeah, Curtis, yes, we uh, have. We all have. Th- that backward, when they played it backwards in the 19th Huggy lost in the quarterfinals. So. <laughs> <laughs> with, his, with his mashing niblet that he still has in his bag. So, right, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, here, Curtis, can, can I ask you, so how did the 62 go down with the locals? Did, did, were people, I mean, they could be... I guess people appreciate amazing golf. I suppose they were pretty happy for you, but you know, so, you know, when Ross Fisher shot sixty, a lot of people weren't happy. Yeah, uh, I understand that completely, it, and nor does nor does Ross Fisher care. You know, he was happy, and his family was happy. Um, I, you know, I, what I thought was what I liked is that <clears throat> the locals got word of what was going on, and coming up eighteen, there was quite a few people there. Yeah. Just because of, as we all know, the atmosphere there, and so hey, she says Curtis Strange is seven under, going eight under, <laughs> all the whispering, and all of a sudden, and all of a sudden they're there, and uh, it was it was a nice it was a nice crowd, and uh, I wish we had to jump on an airplane and come right home. I wish we could have enjoyed the atmosphere at that. Couldn't <laughs> do that. Yeah, it's amazing <laughs> how 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 did word get round the town? It's just amazing, isn't it? Just amazing. It's that that's that's part of the beauty of the place, isn't yeah. it? My yeah. gosh, it's uh, anybody that's ever been there. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like the the famous story of Bobby Jones when he came back there in the mid thirties just for a kind of private game, and uh, you know, the the word spread around the town like wildfire, and you know, wasn't too many holes into the round where there was you know every shop in St Andrews was closed and everybody was out there watching him. <laughs> Here, I you know when I played that. When I played that Walker Cup there in 75, Jay Haas and I went over there and spent an entire afternoon, an hour and a half, with Laurie Octoloni in his little right. club shop. Oh, brilliant. And I'll never forget that. We talked to him. He showed us how to make drivers, why we did this, why we did that, the old days. And then, of course, the modern club it was making, which was he didn't even put an insert in the driver face. It was mm. just wood. Oh, yeah. And it was just, you know, things like that that – you know, I'm lucky that I we took the time to, to to go and visit with him, and just see some of the past and and feel and and taste some of the past of of golf before us because we're all historians in this game, and we all love it. And uh, those who came before us, and it was a it was it was fun to be able to remember doing that. That's a pretty cool thing. A couple of kids seeking out the you know a guy like that. That's you must have absolutely been so into it. Well, it, we were. I mean, we were. I was, you know, as kids, you you regrip your clubs and you take a file to your wood wood face, and just because you can, now you end up destroying a club probably. But that's how you learn. And then to be able to spend a, a you know a few moments with uh, Laurie Octoloni was a uh, uh, man had the biggest hands I've ever seen in my life. But uh, <laughs> just to spend a few time, days with it because you knew his connection with the past goes back to the home of golf. And it goes back to the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah, he must have been an old man then, even, wasn't he? How old was he when you saw him? Well, be careful now about old men, okay? Listen, he was <laughs> probably younger than we are now, Huggy. You know? well, what do you mean, we? Oh, yeah. 
What does what does we shit? <laughs> Here, Curtis, yeah. we'll, we'll move you on. I really appreciate, or we both really appreciate the time. Uh, just on your uh, record as a pro, is it seventeen times you won on the PGA Tour? Yeah, seventeen. Yeah, uh, Pensacola Open was your first one. In case you've forgotten, seventy nine. Here, Huggy's got a bone to pick with you about the Open Championship. Huggy. Well, he's uh, he's heard me talk about this before. I, I still haven't forgiven you for not coming to play in 85 and then playing in the Dutch Open the following week. <laughs> well, you know, and, and you're right. You're exactly right. It was one, it was a regret that I have that I've said on national TV more than once doing the Open Championship. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, I got a little stubborn, as we all could be, and I, you know, the way this works, you know, sometime in the early in the year, you sign a contract to go visit the Dutch Open mm-hmm. and to play. And, uh, and we had a great week. But uh, at that point in time, I was number one on the money list in America, and I hadn't done that before. And I just made a conscious decision to, to not play in the Open, go to the Dutch Open, because I had to, mm-hmm. but to play the week before the Open Championship and to take that week off and go to Dutch and to play one more week on the American tour. Cause I wanted to win desperately the money title. So that was my reasoning. It didn't sit well with the historians of the game and, and some of the writers. And that was fair enough. And I deserved everything I got, you know, bad press, but it, it, would I do it again? No, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a decision I'm making, you know, and, and quite frankly, some of it was, everybody was telling me that I had to go, had to go. Yeah. yeah. And I got, I got stubborn and pissed off and just said, no, I'm not going. <laughs> well, that doesn't so, sound like you at all, Curtis. Really? Come on. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that, you know, that's, that's, you know, we, we make mistakes and hopefully we learn from them. And I certainly learned from that one. Oh, that, yeah. listen, we're, we're only just pulling your leg about that. Curtis. Where was, where was that? No, no, but it's a good point. It's a good point though. Uh, you know, we, we as golfers do the best we can. And sometimes, you know, that's where the agent should step up and say, come on you know, what are you thinking about? But, you know, that's, that's, that's another conversation for another day. Yeah. Plus, just, plus it, it was, it, it was at Royal St. George's, which if you're going to miss an open, that's the one to miss, to be honest. Yeah. You know, I actually enjoyed Royal St. George's. Oh God. Yeah. Dear me. What? I did. Did you ever find it? You know, the 17th doesn't have a fairway. I, uh, anyway, here, listen, where was that? Where was that? It wasn't at Hilversum, was it? The Dutch Open that year? That's a great course. I, I don't remember. Right. No. Anyway, listen. I, well, we've got you in nine, uh, on. We want to come on to the US Open, but eighty. Well, we're talking about eighty-five. I, again, just something to discover. Uh, you, you could have won the Masters in eighty-five. That was a was that a four-shot lead with nine to play? Is that right? Yeah, it was. I I, <laughs> I, I really played well, and I had a four-shot lead, nine to go, and I didn't win. And any time you have a four-shot lead, any time in the last thirty-six holes, I, I think you should win. Really? And uh, and especially on the last day, and I, you know, I we we first have to give credit to Bernhard. Yeah, uh, he played a, a great nine holes. Always got to give credit, but it was mine to win or lose, and and I lost. And I made a couple of uh, poor swings, but I made also a couple of poor decisions, and uh, and could have won. You know, a break here or there could have easily won, but I didn't. And um. You learn from your mistakes. You learn from your losses. You don't win. You don't learn much of anything when you win. Um, I just, uh, I wonder if I'd have won there, what would have been different? Of course, that's unfair, but I think it all worked out in the end. 
Um, I, I wished out I had a green jacket now, uh, but I don't. But that's uh, that's okay. I just uh, that's one that got away, and I I I I I was proud of the fact that I didn't let many get away. Yeah. But that's mm-hmm. one I wish I had back. Yeah, I mean everybody that plays at your level, Curtis, must have a a hardest loss. I'm guessing that must be yours. Yeah. Yeah, it is, John, and 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 everybody does. I mean, this game yeah, is hard enough. You're going to lose, and and those who can, you know, put their boots back on and lace their shoes back up and come back and get them the next day, they're the ones who are going to do well. Uh, if you let it get to you so much, now granted, it does hurt, and it hurts for a while, but you just got to say, you know, screw it. I'm not going to let this beat me, and. um uh, you know, a couple of guys wrote me some nice notes and just said some nice things that, uh, you know, come on, let's go. You know, uh, we've all been there. Let's, let's, let's carry on. And, you know, just a little wink or a, a nod or a comment like that goes a long way when you've just been what you think to been devastated by a loss. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I actually witnessed this firsthand. I mean, the two or three years later, I mean, it, it certainly didn't put it, or didn't seem to put any doubts in your any doubts in your mind that you could handle pressure. I mean, the the, the I'm thinking of the bunker shot at the the last hole at the Country Club. Uh, it wasn't the you know probably the most difficult shot in the world, but in the context it was. I mean, is that is that given that is that the best shot you ever hit or one certainly one of the best? You know, Huggy is not the best shot, but it was the most important shot I ever hit. Yeah, um, it set up the playoff. Um, it was a simple bunker shot, but made tough by the situation. And so I had to get it up and down. I was very fortunate it didn't bury in the bunker. Uh, and then I was fortunate Nick hit a good putt, and, it, and it, it came close. And so we went to the playoff. But if I don't pull that shot off and make part of the last, now we have – now I've you know, lost two big ones. So, um, uh, you know, the, the night before a U.S. Open playoff or an Open – when the open is, was, I don't know when that went to a sudden death, but when you have an 18 0 playoff the next day, you don't sleep well that night. Mm. And, uh, there's a lot of things racing through your mind and what you have to force out is any negative. You've got to say, Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play a good round tomorrow and I'm gonna do my best. And I know every shot is so magnified and, 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 and you don't think about Nick. It didn't matter who I was playing. Although, you know, Nick is, is an opponent that he, you don't think he's going to give you much. So you got to go play a good solid round of golf. You know, it's well, not, it's not brain surgery. It's not hard. You just got to go out there and get it done. Some can and some can't. Yeah. What was the, uh, I mean, you look back now, obviously you won two years open, so you must have been good at that kind of golf. I mean, what, what were the strengths of your game that, that fit, especially the, you know, old fashioned US open, if we can put it that way, because you, as you touched on earlier, it's changed a bit recently, but back then it was, it was your traditional narrow fairways, thick, rough, fast greens. What, what, what yeah, were you particularly and, and, good at that, that made you successful in that? And you, and you thrived on hitting four, five, six, and seven irons. Mm. You know, a, a, a nice, solid par four was a six iron. You know, yeah. it was not a short golf course or any of them. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I understood the U.S. Open, whereas... Uh, uh, you know, par is a good score, um, and never give up on a hole until you miss that putt for par. A lot of times you have to get it up and down from 30 yards because if you drove it in the rough, we couldn't overpower the rough. Mm-hmm. So you had to chase it up as close as you could to the hole and then pitch it on and make a putt. And I, I understood that. And, but I think more than anything else, I could drive it in the fairway 
uh, with the wood woods and spinny balls. I could drive it in the fairway, and that makes all the difference in the world in those days. Yeah. What was the which, which one do you look back on with the most pleasure, the first one or the second one? Is that like trying to? I'll let you answer. Way? I'll <laughs> let you answer that one. <laughs> well, I, I would go with the first one myself, but that's yeah, that's, yeah. And it and 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 be, beating Nick had something to do with it, but being yeah. in Boston and and the great sports town and 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 quite frankly, in the playoff, m- most were rooting for me. Uh, being the American kid, and but it was a great golf course, historical golf course. Uh, uh, being your first major, being the U.S. Open, uh, that my dad played in six or seven of them, and mm-hmm. uh, was U.S. Open was big in my household. And so uh, to to win your, you know, when I dreamt as a boy of winning a golf tournament, it was the U.S. Open. So to do that. Um, was just a dream come true. And the first time you ever do it is, is the one you go back to every time when I think about it. Yeah, I remember you, well, more than once, I think, you getting quite emotional talking about your fam- you know, your family link that your dad played. And you, obviously your dad passed away, sadly, when you were quite young. I mean, it, do you still look back and does that still bring a wee tear to your eye? It must do, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't think about it often, but I but I. I I do enough because I work for Fox and we still televise the U S open every year. So mm-hmm. yes, I, you can't help people bring it up to you and it's great memories. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was talking to somebody the other day. Memories aren't just wins. Great memories are some of the losses as well, because it forms you. It's, it's part of your career. Mm-hmm. You know, I have great memories of, of, of the masters in 85 when I lost the outcome is, is not a great ecstatic memory but it's a great but it's a memory isn't it and so and it makes you hopefully better later on and of course the u.s open is that way and the ending ended well so yeah i have you know memories of other there's other key shots you play in lesser tournaments that formed you just as much as as uh, you know a bad shot in the masters or u.s open and so uh and in this pressure, every time you, you hit a shot, that means a lot. And, you know, the ability to hit the shot, the, the thrill that I always had was the ability to hit the shot when it mattered most. Mm. And, and, and you guys understand that. I mean, and it doesn't matter if it's for your club championship or the U.S. Open. But to know this shot matters and I've got to perform under this pressure uh, and you do it, that's what you practice for. That's, that's what this thing is all about. And uh, that's that's what drives us, I think, to hit the shot that that you dream about uh, when it matters late Sunday afternoon. What was it? What was the biggest driver of you then? Was it winning majors, winning tournaments, winning money, or just being the best player in the world? Being the best player I could be every day. Yeah, that was it. You know, hitting hitting a lot of good shots. I don't care what tournament it was in. You go out and stand on the first tee, and I never had a score one time in my life did I ever have a score in mind. The score would come if you did your job. The score was just a kind of a – the scorecard was, was secondary. It was to put the first tee shot in the fairway, to put the first, the second, first second shot on the first hole, a solid shot, and then get off to a solid start. And then the second hole, and then the third hole, and it's and you were not robot. So then, 
if you miss the shot, you're going to, you're going to get annoyed, but now you have to get over it quickly and have your bunker game show up and then make a four foot putt to save par and then to go to the fourth hole feeling good. So it's, it's, it's up and downs as, as you both know, but it's, it's so many little battles that you play within 18 holes, much less an entire tournament. And it comes down to, you know, do you believe in yourself and can you get it done? Yeah. I've always been kind of interested, Curtis, in that, uh, you know, you, you don't play much competitive golf and haven't for a while. Um, is that something to do with the, you know, you were a pretty intense competitor. I mean, did you kind of burn out? Is there a limited shelf life for somebody that played the way that you played and that you, once you, it's done, it's done? I think that's that at that level. Yeah. Uh, um, maybe not when you think about it. I think when you, when you do it at a level and you do it a certain way at a level, uh, sometimes it's hard to keep to keep doing it that hard every single day, both mentally and physically. Physically, you can do it. It's mm-hmm. staying in the game, getting up and getting to that first tee, really raring to go. I couldn't wait to get up. When I first started the tour for 20, 15 years, I couldn't wait to get to the golf course. And I played early in every practice round, so I'd have the entire afternoon to practice. <laughs> I felt like I was cheating myself if I played a practice round at noon and only hit a couple of balls. I'd wasted a day. So, yeah, I, I guess, who knows? I, I'd lost a little interest. I started um, tinkering around with my golf swing just because I can. I get bored. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to try to keep my interest up. Now, when I, if I ever got in competition, the fire would come back immediately. But you've got to have the fire starting Tuesday morning. Yeah. You can't just show up on the weekend. The um. <clears throat> We had Harrington on a couple of weeks ago, Curtis, and he said his theory was that top, top players have, I mean, they're obviously great for their career, but they have an 18-month window where they they really unlock it and and they have to, that's when they really have to make hay. Do you, have a, you ever thought about it like that? Not like that, not in terms like that. But I did know, uh, even when I started, I looked at all the great players, and other than Nicholas, most players last seven or eight years, you know, top mm-hmm. notch, even Arnold in the day. Yeah. When you think about it, he might've gone a year longer, but, um, seven or eight years, uh, full throttle. Um, and you got to remember, it's not just on torts. It starts back in junior golf and in amateur golf and college golf. And then you make that leap of faith to the, to the PGA tour. And eventually your kids are growing. You've been on the road. 30 weeks a year for, for maybe pushing 15 years now on tour. Uh, you're tired. Uh, you have other things you'd like to do that you've missed. Uh, all of those little things, and they're not little, but they, and, and it's the same in any business as well, I'm sure. But uh, unfortunately, in golf, you have to show up uh, mentally and physically prepared every day. And if you're not, it's not gonna, you're not going to be sharp. And when I wasn't sharp and I knew I wasn't into it, it really pissed me off and annoyed me. And, and then you kind of, now you're in a vicious circle because you should go back to the practice day and you don't. And it just, it becomes a vicious circle and you play decent golf, trust me, but you don't play the golf that you did this, the previous seven or eight years. Was there a moment where you can look back and say that, that I'm done. I've had it. That's it. I'm, it's over. You know, I don't think it was a moment on tour but I do remember when I lost the next year, Madonna, for my third U.S. Open in a row, 
there was a lot of there was a lot of wind that kind of you know my sails weren't full anymore and and it was almost it was almost a relief it was almost a relief driving for that third u.s open you know and just doing everything in my power for 12 months to get prepared for that and not and having a chance on sunday but just didn't play well on sunday um it was just driving to the airport i'll never forget the feeling and if if that's as close to a moment as i can give you yeah it's interesting Curtis, you never really took to the champions tour i mean was there i think you got out of it pretty quickly was that a, did you did you look forward to that and then when you got there thinking uh, not really not for me? Well, I'd done I'd, I'd been working for ABC and and doing the Open Championship for eight years. I turned fifty. I wanted to play. I thought I wanted to play, and I think I went at it reasonably solid for two and a half, maybe three years. But it's just you know there was a reason why I backed off when I was forty two years old and played some, but did TV. You don't you don't light the fire again, you mm. really don't. I mean, the Champions Tour is a wonderful tour, and it's it's great com- camaraderie and it's good competition. Trust me. Yeah. Um, but uh, it just it just I went back to TV and I still played some, but I didn't play very well and and I enjoyed the TV and uh, it was another world altogether, and and I and I chose that route again. But uh, you don't you don't relight the fire. There's no such thing. Yeah, yeah I, it's like when adrenaline leaves your body, you can never really get it back. Not immediately, anyway. That's for sure. No, not in the game. You might get it back in another endeavor, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Something that really p- piques your interest. But uh, you know, the body's getting older. Uh, the body's tearing down, and you just kind of you kind of get tired. You know, just now. I, I admire so much Bernhard Langer and Jay Haas and. Potty Harrington, who's going at it still hard, and some of those like that because they've kept that hail whirling. I mean, they've kept that drive and that 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 focus and whatever that means. Uh, they've just kept their love for the game uh, it, for such a long period of time, and I admire that. I'm, I'm jealous at times, but it just wasn't you know just wasn't in me. Here, uh, Curtis, uh, you, just very quickly, you, you mentioned your TV career. And I don't want to go over old ground, and I don't, you know, that I noticed a piece last week breaking down your, the famous interview with Tiger. I mean, it's just two things. One, are you astonished at how that still resonates that moment? And secondly, do, do you think you are somewhat, you've been somewhat misrepresented in the kind of breakdown analysis of this singular moment of TV? Well, I just, you have to consider the source. Um, I think no, those who understand where I was coming from, the tour, the comment that he made, uh, and no disrespect to Tiger for making the comment, but don't disrespect me for making my comment. I think everybody who played the tour, anybody who understood golf, understood my comment where I was coming from. And it was done in a little jest. It was done to a young man who played one professional round of golf in his life. And looking back on it, it was probably uh, not the right thing to do. But you know what? I think I, I said my piece. And I, I, it, it hurts a little bit because uh, it is misrepresented. 
I, I, I love Tiger Woods. I, I admired him greatly since day one. But don't disrespect those who came before you that you're all of a sudden better and you're out there to win every tournament when you're 19 years old. Yeah. What was your take on it, Huggy? Well, I, 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 I like your explanation of it. I mean, uh, and it, the, you know, everybody's looking at it now with the benefit of hindsight, which is absolutely it's easy, to, it's easy to make fun of it now. But I mean, back then it was it seemed perfectly reasonable to me. <laughs> see, Curtis, see afterwards. Uh, did you think anything of that? The interview? Did you, oh, that's just another interview. Did you think? I mean, here we are. Oh, what, how many years later? Twenty-five years later, talking about it. not us. But everybody still talks about it. Did you think anything of it afterwards? No, not at all. My <laughs> producer loved it. Mike Tarika was standing right there, and he thought it was good. I I was honored that they let me do that. In fact, three years ago, when coming up on the anniversary of his uh of his 97 masters. I wanted to interview him again. I've always wanted to interview him again and start with that comment. Yeah. <laughs> and tell him how much we've learned. We learned, we all learned. And, but hindsight is 2020, isn't it? And that's the part that people, people show their ignorance and no disrespect, but they show their ignorance and the lack of knowledge when they do get on me in Twitter. You know, I, every comment I make on Twitter, somebody comes back and all I'm trying is hugging them. All I'm trying to do is give them some inside baseball. Yeah. And these and these these people come back. You'll learn. Oh, really? Give me something new. Okay, I've heard that before, pal. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the other one. Sorry, the, the the other interview that I've always remember that you did, and I was I was basically standing next to you when you did it because uh, we were all crowded around the. The little hut. I know Phil what you're going to say. Bill Middleton <laughs> eventually emerged from after about 45 minutes. Um, what did you really want to ask him? That's, that would be my question. I think I asked him what I really wanted to ask him. Right. What the I hell think, were you, you know, thinking? Well, I wanted to do that, but I think I got the point across. I, I really do. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Um, but and, you and, were very diplomatic. I, that's, what I, that's my point. Well I, well, I had to be, but I asked him, you know, and then we were talking about, you know, Phil, when he hit the moving ball at Shinnecock two years ago. And, I mean, nobody's ever done that. You don't do that. You're taught to play by the rules, the etiquette. And, and here's a guy, one of, the, one, of the, one of the most loved players out there, doing something so ridiculous. And, and, and then he, I think what, after the first question, and he came back with that ridiculous answer on, well, I knew the rules. I just was yeah. gonna, didn't want to go to the front of the green, all the other bullshit. You yeah. know, I just, it, it kind of, it, it, it aggravated me. Like, just admit that you made a mistake, pal, and that would have been the end of that. Yeah. Well, that, that was, was trying to make a, in my mind, he was trying to make a point against the USGA and the fast greens and Shinnecock. Yeah. But guess what? You're, you're one of 156 players, and I don't see anybody else doing it, yeah. you know? I mean that that was so, the intriguing part for me was that he he was in there for as I said about forty five minutes and that was the best he could come up with. I mean that wasn't the smartest. You're answer. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if he if he'd actually come clean and said, you know, I, I I know it was wrong, but I'm making a point. They've screwed this golf course up again. I'm tired of it. I've had enough. I'm withdrawing. See you next year. If he'd done that, I mean, I would have been okay. That's you know almost fine. But the, the, as you said, the answer he gave was was just made no sense whatsoever. Yeah, well, it was from an interviewer standpoint. I was quite nervous because I knew this was going to be 
yeah. remembered. Yeah. And I didn't want to make a mistake. I wanted to represent Fox and myself and all of the players in that golf tournament well. But I had to be prepared. And in my mind, I was. But don't think I wasn't nervous. And the longer he made us wait, oh. the more nervous we all got. So, yeah. But anyway, hey, it's, that's part of doing TV, and that's the challenge of TV. Uh, don't think my blood doesn't start to run hot when, when I have a, 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 an important situation that you really don't want to screw up. Mm-hmm. But yeah. speaking of that, Curtis, didn't you commentate on Duval's 59 at Palm Springs? Were you in the booth that day? Did. You know, we've had some interesting moments. Duval's 59, Tariq and I call that. Of course, we called Vandeveld oh, uh, yeah. to Carnoustie. Yeah. Wow. We yeah. called Woosom and the two drivers on the first tee. Oh. Um, we called, we, we've seen for a stretch there had something happen at the Open Championship every year. Uh, but that's all, that makes for good TV. And that makes for more stuff for us to talk about and, and try to bring closer to the game, to the fans, uh, what happened and why. Um, you know, I, I read, I, in the last five years, I've seen uh, uh, Vandeveld two or three times. And the, the entire start to finish. And I have to say, you know, we're all critical of our performances, but I got to say that we did a hell of a job chronicling Vanderbilt. And of course, at that point in time, you don't have to say a whole lot. The pitcher's telling all the, all the yeah. things happening out there, but we tried to try to explain why this or that, but you know what, in his case, it was tough to explain. Yeah. I mean, I've never heard your commentary on that. Cause obviously I was there and we weren't, the ABC commentary wouldn't be available. I mean, uh, what, 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 what did you see as it, as it evolved in front of you? Well, uh, when he was walking to the, the tee, my producer said, Rosberg and strange go, everybody else shut up. Right. So then we said he shouldn't hit a driver. He hit driver. He got lucky, hit it to the right of the, <clears throat> the burn. Yeah. Um, then when he's taken out of two iron, Rossi said, Curtis, he's got a straight face club here. And I said, well, this is odd because he's aiming at the angles right to the out of bounds left of the green. Mm. And then he, he hit it to the right, probably because of the out of bounds. And then he get and then, and then it just snowballed after that. But we didn't say a whole lot. Mm. Uh, we kind of let him, let him, <laughs> yeah. you know, self-destruct right in front of the world. And, uh, and then I after that, it's just going to the playoff. I said, he didn't have a chance. I thought he was really unlucky with that second shot. I mean, that that was almost a legitimate play to whack it into the grandstand up the right-hand side there and take the drop and make your five and win. Well, fair enough. It was unlucky. Yeah. But what would have been smarter is take a wedge or non-iron yeah. and put it short of the burn yeah. and pitch on and and and, and have, be hugging and kissing that Claire Judd. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not, you, I'm bring not in, you bring in possibilities of wrong when you put a two iron out in the right, right stance. Yeah. What did you make of the way the golf course was that week? Difficult. <laughs> <laughs> might be, might be the hardest golf course I have ever seen in my life. Yeah. Probably was. Yeah. Well, Does that I, make it fair? Was, well, yeah. I was perplexed. Um, by, you're right. because And that was what perplexed me was that, one of the hardest courses, if not the hardest course in the world, didn't need to be set up like that. You know, it's weird. No, 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 not at all. And then you had Vanderbilt, 
who went to the last over three shot lead that's been hitting driver all week long. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, you know, you start rooting for somebody when you, when he comes down to the last couple of holes, he's playing well and he's got this personality and, and, and of course you're, I was, you know, I'm rooting inside. You try not to ever root, but I'm rooting for Justin Leonard or somebody. Yeah. But I finally decided, you know, this is going to be great for golf, great for European golf, great for French golf. And he's a good kid. He's mm-hmm. a nice young man. Yeah, he's, he's so a this great is going to be good. Now I'm rooting for him. And then I hate to see anybody, anybody self-destruct in any sport. But then when he started doing what he's doing, it, it started <laughs> to aggravate me to the point of he needs to be shaken and say, well, well, let's think this, let's think this through. Yeah. And, but he didn't, he made a number of wrong decisions and it just, it was sad. It was sad. Here, yeah. Curtis, uh, do you think professional golfers ego stopped him taking six iron wedge, wedge? I mean, uh, would you have done that? You're damn right. I would have seriously and, and done it too. Uh, you know, it, I'm not six iron, but I think you put up and hitting driver off the tee is fair enough. Three shot lead. The driver can go anywhere and he can still, he can hit it. The burning still win. Yeah. Um, but I think you, you know, you, you probably take a, a three iron or four iron off the tee. Uh, then you, you know, you take it long enough off the tee so you can go to the green in two, but you know, you don't have to, you really don't have to because it's not exciting for the 10,000 fans there on the last hole, but who cares? Yeah. You know, what's exciting is drinking champagne out of that jug that night. Yeah. And, and he, and he wouldn't do it. And I, I still feel for the guy. Yeah, he, he could have done with nothing wedge. but class. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, has. He's, yeah. he really handled it well, but I, I, I know he thinks about it. I don't care what he says. He thinks about it. He, but again, he's part of the lore of the open championship and will be remembered forever. Yeah, it's like poor old Doug Sanders who just passed away recently. I mean, he uh, his famous line was that he didn't think about the putt in 1970 for sometimes as much as ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, same. Yeah, same story. Sad story. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway. uh, just final question. Uh, well, on TV, and then I've just one more after that. Sorry. The uh, yeah. was that the most because you were also on the commentary for the Watson at Turnbury. I mean, was the Van de Velde thing the, the greatest moment of TV that you've been involved in, do you think? Or, I mean, you choose. Well, I think that if Watson would have won, oh. um, it would have been, it would have been maybe the greatest achievement in the history of sport. Now, people say, well, that's a big statement. Well, to win the Open Championship at 59 years old is a pretty good statement as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I, he got unlucky, but he didn't win. And I sometimes feel sorry for Stuart Sink, uh, because he's the forgotten man, but, uh, win the open championship at 59 is, I can't put it into words. Yeah. It was a shame really. I mean, you could almost see when he hit the pot, green. I mean, it went to my mouth. And there's no way he's going to win the playoff after that. You know that. Yeah. If he yeah. if he didn't win it there, he wasn't going to win it. It's a, it was a shame. Yeah, I was, I I didn't know what to think. Uh, mm-hmm. But when he mishit the second shot on the second hole into the bunker. Yeah. Um, that's when he. That's and he didn't hit a good bunker shot. That's when he was done. Yeah. So. 
Here, here, last question, Curtis. Who is the best? Pl- You're not allowed to pick Seve. Best player you ever saw. I, I noticed going through you all your stuff last night. You seem to love, love Trevino. I mean, was he your guy? Yeah. Well, he was the best ball striker that I'd ever seen, uh, as far as controlling the trajectory, the spin, uh, uh, the speed of the swing, hitting different shots. Yeah, he was the best that I'd ever seen. Um, and I never saw Hogan, who was supposedly number one. But there's been some great strikers. And, you know, the, to play with Nicholas is a different environment. Um, he was so good. He had length at the time, but also had, you know, quite a bit of accuracy. And uh, then he had, uh, you know, Seve in his own way was exciting. How can you not watch him? Much like Phil Mickelson. Uh, uh, you know, Norman was exciting and explosive in my day. But I like to go back to the old guys. I, I Sneed was was uh, a favorite of mine, classic, uh, and and Roberto DiVincenzo, uh, mm. Chrissy O'Connor Jr. You know some of the old timers that uh, that paved the way for us. They're the ones that, uh, gosh, I admire so much. Uh, and some of the guys you don't hear much of that I became good friends of over the years that paved the way for us. So. Uh, you know, we've been lucky with good guys, good players. Of course, Arnold is Arnold. You know, everybody loved it. You never, you never. It seems like you, you were, you're, sorry, Lawrence. I was just going to say that it sounds like Curtis is drawn to the artists more than the scientists. Those guys were all the creative types with the shots. It sounds like. Well, it, it, it's a good point. I, uh, I, I admire these modern players tremendously, um, but I like the toughness of the old guys. I liked the, you know, they played for the love of the game and a career. They didn't make a lot of money. Uh, they played with equipment that was really almost inferior to what they're playing with now. Uh, but they got it done, and they shot good scores, and they hit good shots. So they had great hands, great hand-eye coordination. Um, they didn't learn by hitting it off the track, man. They learned by how they could get it done. You know, they all hit down on it. They all squeezed it out, uh, and they hit the ball very solidly. Uh, I just, I just love the trajectory of some of those shots back in the day, and the sound of it. It, it was a different sound than it is now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can make a case for that. Sam Snead is the greatest golfer of all time, just because he was greater. He was a great player longer than anybody else. Has been a great player. I mean, he was he was competitive in his early sixties, for goodness' sake. Oh my gosh, he he finished fourth in the PGA when he was sixty three oh. years old, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, at Tanglewood, so yeah, his longevity is 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 a star in his corner. Uh, he he was fantastic. The big three: Hogan, Nelson, Snead. Can imagine watching him play golf. Then you go back to Bobby Jones. Bobby Jones in the playoff of the U.S. Open shot like 71-70 in a 36-hole playoff at Wingfoot. Mm. I don't care what tees you're playing with. Back in the 30s, are you kidding me? Yeah. There's things like that you can go back and watch. And, you know, people, guys, people talk about how hard they swing now. Everybody that listens to this, go back and YouTube how hard Bobby Jones swung or mm. Jack Nicklaus or Arnold Palmer. I mean, these guys, they, they broke shoelaces coming out of their shoes. So if you would have given them the modern equipment and ball, you know, track man would have broken. <laughs> you know, I tech, I tweeted out about a year ago, there's a picture of Arnold right before impact. And he's got triceps 
that are bulging, biceps that are bulging, huge hands. And I said nothing but country strong. He'd never seen the inside of a gym, but he was stronger than anybody out there. Yeah, he, so, he, he was an athlete. Yeah, he was. He was an athlete. Yes, he was. And Sam Snead was, too. Yeah, absolutely. Here, that, that, that sounds like a, a very good point to, uh, to stop. Curtis, we are so grateful. You gave us so much of your time. It was fantastic. We could have you on all day. You almost talked as much as Podrick Harrington. You said you were quite a reticent person. <laughs> you know, you, you get me going with the game and, and memories and, and old old memories and experiences. And you know what? It's I love every minute of it. It's not about me. It's about those who came before and those you got to know and you learn from and those who helped you. And uh, it, we, none of us would be where we are today if it wasn't for those who came before us. Listen, thanks very much, Curtis. Take care. Thanks, Curtis. Thank you, man. Enjoyed it.